I don't have tingling anymore. Um, my ankles aren't swollen anymore. I think my brain's about as sharp as it's ever been. I think what's changed for me is a fundamental kind of joy in life that I now know how I think I'm going to spend my retirement years in a healthy fashion. I'm no longer sitting here waiting for the Alzheimer's to hit. Welcome to You Cured What? The podcast of reversing the irreversible. This is where you hear how real people are healing from conditions that most people think they're stuck with for life. I'm your host, Joe Kalb. If I had to give you some medical advice, I'd go to medical school and get a medical degree. Seriously, nothing in this podcast is medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute as such. Now, enjoy the You Cured What? conversation. My guest today reversed her type 2 diabetes and greatly improved her own health. Now, she spends a significant amount of time and resources to help others do the same. Welcome to the You Cured What? podcast, Amanda Atkins. How are you doing today, Amanda? Hi, Joe. I'm doing well. It's a bit of a panic because there's a bit of a gale going on, but other than that, things are all fine. <laughs> um, love, lovely to get the opportunity to talk to you, so thank you. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. I know you've been helpful to me and to many other people on Twitter over the years, and um, I know this has become a, a big passion of yours. Uh, can you give a little bit of background um, as to kind of your health journey and uh, your experience with uh, with type 2 diabetes? Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy to. Um, first of all, I guess, I guess I'm not actually your typical weight loss T2 diabetes reversal story. Um, sure, I have lost a bit of weight since I switched my diet, but then again, I put some back on too. And I've actually done that many times before throughout my entire life. Neither the weight loss nor the weight gain actually made a whole lot of difference to my metabolic health. What made the difference was my food choices. Simple as that. I have reversed T2 diabetes. I am now healthier than I was when I was 18 years old. But I still weigh on average pretty much what I've done my whole life since being a teenager, give or take a bit. So why do I think I'm healthier? Well, probably the best thing to do is just to give you a little bit of my health history. It is not particularly dramatic, but it does help put things in context a bit. Um, When I was 17 years old, and bearing in mind I'm 62 now, I was an overweight teenager. My school went on a trip to the Lake District. To this day, I can recall how it made me feel trying to walk up a steep slope that my friends didn't seem to have a problem with. Despite that, and despite the fact that I really couldn't go up things, I've always been hardy, irrepressible. I take things that life throw at me with relative equanimity, and there's been a fair few. So running up a hill, hell no. But In my 30s, charitable right ride across 18 London bridges went disastrously wrong. I needed a maxillofacial surgeon to put my face back together by rewiring my jaw after I hit myself in the face with a scaffold pole. So kind of dramatic. I was back at work the following day. I actually had a piece of paper over the mess of my face while I gave a presentation. So things don't get to me. 
So anyway, um, for my entire life, I've had this kind of slightly uncomfortable bloating feelings after all the meals, a desire to eat more than I needed to, a complete lack of any actual realistic willpower. Every single day, this will be the day that I'm going to change my weight forever. In fact, I still have that feeling most days. Um, on most of them, I also fail miserably. So I ignored it, do something else, usually something that's quite fun and productive. And on the few days off, when I'm actually blessed with the superhuman willpower, I lose weight. And I guess I've taken off and put back on around 30 kilograms at least once every decade throughout my entire life. So um, I do have one big disappointment. I've got no kids. And despite one IVS cycle and three miscarriages, I was diagnosed by a London specialist clinic. They said, you've got antiphospholipid antibodies and told me this explained my childless state. So no one actually mentioned food. Every year, I had a company medical. There would be an ensuing panic when the examiner announced I, have a, I might have a heart attack any moment. I was called to sort of sit down, you know, this is dreadful. Um, and then they'd send me off to a specialist, and he'd come back and say, it's a normal female variation. We don't see many of those around here. The doctor would mutter something about weight, tell me my blood markers were all fine, give me a repeat prescription for blood pressure medication, and then usher me out of his office. He never mentioned food. In 2005, living in Switzerland, I managed to get to cut my foot, and I ended up with sepsis. I recall cycling to the hospital, being told the cycle ride might have killed me, having lines drawn on my legs saying, if the red goes beyond this, call an ambulance. And me cycling home anyway, and then blithely carrying on with my leg on a footrest. No one mentioned food. One outcome of that particular problem was that in a subsequent medical, doctors in Switzerland told me categorically that, no, there was no indication whatsoever that my childlessness had anything whatsoever to do with phospholipid antibodies. Instead, it was unexplained, just like my high blood pressure was unexplained. They did, however decide that I wasn't symmetrical. This is an unusual statement, but the Swiss are very keen on symmetry. And they prescribed me a pair of insoles, inserts to go in my shoes that were going to make me more symmetrical, which I approximately, which I wore about twice. Um, and no one ever actually mentioned food. So throughout all of this, you know, years and years in, the odd little thing and, you know, give me, tell me anything. Usually some completely quackpot answer to something. So but one outcome of that was that I had, um, yeah, I moved. And this time I was in Ireland. And in 2012, I got sepsis again. I was on a trip to a cinema. I was in such a freezing condition that I ended up wearing most of my companion's clothes. Following day, dragged myself, complete with a bright red leg, almost to my hip, to my general practice, almost on the point of collapse. The receptionist there announced it was lunchtime, and I have to wait outside for an hour, because they didn't actually have waiting facilities inside. It was actually only my decision to call for an ambulance, or in fact insist that she call for an ambulance, that actually got me to hospital in time, at which point I was told I got one of the highest inflammation markers they'd ever seen, and the hospital decided it was too dangerous for me to stay in hospital. And because of the fear of infection, they sent me home with a drip and a nurse to look after me. No one mentioned food. 2014, I had another tiny incident. This time I woke up one morning to find I'd gone blind in one eye. Completely wow. blind. I figured it must be stress. 
So based on my previous experience, I think, well, going to a doctor is not exactly top of my list of priorities because, frankly, they've been pretty much worse than useless for every other event of my life. So other than when it's an actual accident, the guy who did the maxillofacial stuff, brilliant. The actual general practice, worse than useless. So anyway, me being me, I decided that my best treatment for this is I'm going to go for a swim. This will, in fact, improve my stress. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. Funnily enough, it didn't. I did swim a mile. I got out of the pool and I was as blind as when I went in. And I went to sleep and I was still as blind the following morning. At which point I present myself to the optician. He sent me off to an eye hospital, complete with an instruction, which is, you know, you must lie down in the cab and not move your head. I didn't actually have the heart to tell him I'd just been swimming. It turned out I had a detached retina. So, for a while, I wore a stylish eye patch, um, while some other excellent physicians put my eye back together again. The thing healed completely after various invention, interventions. I actually now have 2020. Sorry about that. I now have 2020 vision in that particular eye. Um, oh Jesus! Excuse me. Um, which is damn sight better than the other one. So there's still no one mentioned food or anything like that or nutrition or diet or, or anything really. I just had these inexplicable things happening to me. Um, the problems that I had with the fact that I was kind of overweight didn't stop me being really successful, um, particularly my job and, and, and earning money, which is something I'm profoundly grateful for. And as you said, I've, I've been spending some of it like mad. Um, <laughs> As I got older, it didn't actually stop me being relatively fit either. As long as I didn't have to deal with gravity, as in going up hills, I could actually do an awful lot. I used to swim a mile a couple of days, a couple of times a week. I'd swim across lakes, down rivers, God knows where. I'd cycle 20 miles, lots and lots of times. And I often did it. So apart from this niggling feeling that I could be slimmer, all in all, I was really pretty happy with my lot. And, and actually, I, I had lots of stamina, a great social life, lots of friends, lots of travel, brilliant, no stressful job. And in 2016, everything's pretty much as normal. I've got a few things going on that are bothering me. My fingers kind of tingle a bit, and so do my feet. And I've got swollen ankles, and I feel about 93 trying to get out of bed. But that's actually not that much older than I felt when I was 17. You know, I always felt terrible getting out of bed. Every so often, my thumb would lock up. I had a carpal tunnel syndrome in my arm, which meant I spent a fortune trying to find the right mouse mat. I didn't seem to be sleeping all that well. And in a bid to improve that, I kind of went to bed for the afternoon, the odd afternoon nap, because that seemed like it might help. Um, I found I was getting a bit dizzy when I bent down, and it was getting quite hard to be upright to do the washing up. And I mean, it's not my favourite thing in the first place. So, you know, it's, it's not, it was something like, oh, God, do I really have to do? So there were some of the most simple things in life. I found I hated being in the sun and it just made me so sweaty and uncomfortable. And for the first time, I actually started to ponder Alzheimer's. It seemed to be getting harder to remember phone numbers. And it, on a few days, I actually couldn't quite seem to remember the name of people. There were people I knew quite well. In one memorable instance, my husband. Um... It was on the tip of my tongue, but my tongue was just not connecting with my brain. It just didn't, you know, things were just not, it was like a little soup going on that was just in the way, enough for me to think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really getting old now. 
Anyway, I decided in my usual fashion, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to lose weight. And this will be a clear panacea to all the problems I've got because everybody says that. So off I went on my usual 1,200 calorie, low fat, low sat fat, lots of vegetables, fish. And yep, I lost weight, seven kilograms in six weeks. I spent years of my life on with a tracker app, obsessively weighing and recording things, eating one grape at a time, limiting fat, all the kind of stuff we all know. I knew it would work, and it did. It was all going completely swimmingly well, except for two additional things. I got a dry cough that wouldn't go away, and the feeling that someone was twisting a knife in my stomach between meals, and that was kind of making my diet a really Herculean task. Eventually, my lodger, suspecting cancer, took me in hand and deposited me at the doctor's almost forcefully. Doctor gave me some cough medicine, took my blood panel, something you've been doing for 20 years. Two hours later, I got a phone call. Your blood sugar, this was my fasting blood sugar, is 18.4 mole, which in American terms will be 258. Wow. Ow. Yeah, it was kind of a big owl. Didn't really mean much to me at the time because I didn't really know anything about it. He then said, um, I think we have a problem. As you seem, as it seems to me, this was a telephone call, you may have severe diabetes. Not are you sitting comfortably here is what seems like a death sentence. Just seems like you may have severe diabetes. He also said he was a tad worried because I was in ketosis. Now, now I know that I was actually in ketosis of 0.5 mole which was actually just confirming that whilst I was, in fact, telling the world that, yes, I was eating a low-calorie deficient diet to lose weight, that was exactly what I was doing, and hence I was in ketosis. He, on the other hand, suggested that this ketosis itself um, suggest was a kind of presage of utter doom. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't actually sufficient doom to have me go back to the, hospital, to the doctors. It was sufficient doom to tell me I needed to go on a four-day waiting list to turn up, to go and see a specialist who on the Friday would put me on insulin. And I'd go straight onto insulin because I was so severely diabetic that there was no real point doing any of the other fluffy stuff in the middle. So, so at this point, I'm kind of sat, sitting at home and thinking, shit, <laughs> in a fairly big, fairly big way, really. This one seems like it's, it's rather more difficult to deal with than just going to get my face re-pinned re together or, an, or a new eye put in or whatever. So, um, so I did what most normal people, or maybe not so normal people would do. The first thing I did was I got out my will, and, and I took a look at that and realised that it was reasonably up to date, so that was fine. So if I was going to die before Friday, it wouldn't be too big a disaster. And then I googled severe diabetes. If you don't mind, I'd actually like to talk through the paper that I found in some detail, because I think it's just so utterly instructive, Absolutely. and it saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. First thing, the very first study I pulled up, I said, it said severe diabetes. I was looking not for fluff. I was looking for research. So I'd, I'd done it, and I was looking for the one that had the PubMed reference, whatever. And I came up... The very first study said effect of a low-carbohydrate diet on glycemic control in outpatients with severe type 2 diabetes. That seemed like that was me. I had no idea how severe. I didn't know how to define anything. 
but it kind of looked like I should be looking at what is the effect of a low carbohydrate diet on those with severe type 2 diabetes. So I did. Anyway, the premise of this study was really simple. It was if you restrict carbs to 45% of diet, that will help someone with mild type 2. And the divine design mild is a HbA1c of under 7.4 as a number. They then said, so if restricting it to, 30, to 45% helps those, would if you increase the restriction to 30% help those with severe type 2 and HbA1c over 9? I didn't know what mine was, but I kind of did know that my doctor had said it was severe, so I was going to make the assumption that probably the answer is over nine. So anyway, there was a little table. And on this little table, it was only it was actually a third of a page long. And it said, don't eat. And the first thing on the agenda was fruit. It said, don't eat pear, apple, a couple of things I don't recognize, orange, grapefruit, peach, grape, melon watermelon, pineapple, and that old chestnut, bananas. To be honest, the fact that it said don't eat fruit didn't really strike me as all that surprising because whilst I've been trying to get healthy, I'd recently bought a blender. And I'd use it so I could combine all that healthy fruit with some kale and spinach. It was one of my healthy weight loss daily meals on my low-fat, low-saturated-fat, calorie-controlled, 1,200-calorie diet. And these researchers have put fruits right at the top of the hit list. So the fruits in my fridge must be binned. That was step number one. Step number two listed don't eat vegetables. But what it actually said was carrot, Indian lotus, pumpkin and autumn squash. I have never eaten any of the last three. And I just ran out of carrots. So that was fine. That was an easy, easy win. I can do that one. I've ticked that straight off my list. The next one said confectionery, all of them. Well, to be honest, as a woman who gave up sugar when she was 15, who doesn't like sweet stuff, got almost nothing in the house, the pile for the grid, for the bin grew by one packet of biscuits. <laughs> nothing. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happily ticking off this list and thinking, still not got it yet, but we're going to get there. So the next one was drink. Beverages. Don't drink any beverages containing sugar, glucose, fructose, and milk. Well, I don't drink sugar-sweetened beverages. Never have done. Don't like them. Admittedly, I did get into fruit juices for a while, and I'd bin them already to replace them with my healthier ones that were the actual fruit and the kale. And I did drink milk, but only ultra-skimmed milk in my tea. Part of my low-calorie, low-sat-fat, low-blot-blot-blot diet. And I did have a pretty endless supply of that on my desk. So I thought, right, skim milk, bin. Great. And then it came to the real killer that has always amused me and has completely changed my life. Alcohol. Don't eat sake, beer and wine. Brackets, distilled liquor, not restricted. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Now, I've been largely teetotal for, for long enough. I mean, I drink's one of those things. It doesn't really bother me that much. I mean... I drink it or I don't. Sometimes I drink it to excess. Sometimes I don't bother, but it's not a big deal. I haven't actually had spirits since I was 21. And I'm always going to put that down to the baby sham in terms of why I then stopped. But my next trip to the supermarket is now going to include, I'm going to buy some Scottish single malt. 
<laughs> this diet's now told me this is going to help. And, and we've now come to the end of the list. I'm thinking this, <laughs> this, this is getting a bit silly. You know, and these guys are obviously very proud of this study, so must be going to do something. Anyway, turns out, carry on reading, patients were only restricting. And in fact, the study, which bear in mind it's from Japan, is not that big a surprise. These people are still allowed to eat rice and noodles. Hmm. And some potatoes, fruits and breads. Because the idea of this was you were supposed to be limiting to 30% of your carbs. So on average, these people were actually eating 19 to 170 grams of carbs a day and still improving their HbA1c. Anyway, and that did surprise me because rice had been my sort of staple low-calorie carb during my stupid diet. And I didn't somehow think that having binned a few apples and bought some whiskey that of itself is just going to be quite enough for me to now decide it's all worked. So next paragraph. Patients are permitted to eat as much protein and fat as they wanted, including saturated fat. Aha! A light bulb moment. Stop with the carbs, stop with the fats, and especially start with those deadly saturated fats that I've been avoiding for years. So... Somewhat unusually, in, in this case, this particular study had actual charts of what had happened to 33 people, uh, which was only, the only people in the study. And it showed that except for two people, the apparently good things, even though I didn't actually know what any of them meant, because I hadn't looked up any of the actual science at this point, all seemed to be going in the right direction. Um, the blurb explained that two people had gone and had obviously gone back onto their carb chowing ways. I don't know, maybe they'd added a fruit salad back in or something. And their numbers on these charts were all horrendous. The next sentence completely surprised me because it said, BMI slightly decreased over six months. Decrease did not reach statistical significance. Okay, so whatever this, whatever it was, was working without weight loss. Because all these charts are all going in the right direction. Everybody's looking healthier. Nobody's lost any weight. Then, and this is, and I'm going to read this absolutely word for word, because this is the sentence that completely changed my life and my attitude to both food and science and the practice thereof. One female patient had increased physical activity level during the study period in spite of our instructions. However, her increase in physical activity was no more than one hour of walking per day, four days a week. She had implemented an 11% carbohydrate diet without any diabetic drug, and her HbA1c level decreased from 14.4% at baseline to 6.1% after three months, and had been maintained at 5.5% after six months. Wow. That is a dramatic drop. Absolutely dramatic. I Googled, at this point, I'm like, I keep hearing about this damned HbA1c. I have no idea what it means. So I Googled it. I found shades of HbA1c, and that said she's firmly in the green zone after just six months. So it's like, what the actual fuck? You know, I mean, here is this woman... One woman who has ignored what they've been told, who has done more than she was asked, who has actually now apparently reversed her diabetes in circumstances which all all she'd really done was go one step further and get rid of the bloody rice and the the potatoes. So 
So by this point, it's like, as far as I can see then, all I needed to do was exactly what the researchers tell me, but then do what this brilliant woman had done and leave out the rice and the potatoes as well. So that's exactly what I did. So I went back to my kitchen and this time I knew what I was looking for. So, so rather than just trying to chuck away the apples and, and the packet of biscuits and buy a bottle of whiskey, um, I decided I needed to get rid of the rice and the noodles and the couscous and the crisp breads and the rice eaters and the bread and, and the stuff that was actually the stuff that formed the base of my diet for the last six weeks while I was losing my six kilograms or seven kilograms. So by dinner time, I'd got a completely new plan. Now bear in mind, this was the day I was diagnosed. Wow. So you know, we are now three hours into Amanda Atkins type two diabetes, severe, of unstated actual severity. By dinner time, I'd been to the shop, I bought some bacon and eggs, some butter, some cream and some meat. I'd binned all the rice and the potatoes and the fruit and the bread and everything that said low fat and low saturated fat on it. I'd ended up with three new principles. It's not about the weight, but if you lose some, it's cool. Don't fear saturated fat, so add meat, fish and dairy. Your HbAc A1c, whatever that was, will be entirely in line with however many carbs you eat. Done. So that's what I did. By the Friday, I first found out, I found out for the first time what my HbA1c was. I'm assuming it would have been higher four days earlier because I've now spent four days not eating any carbs, but, but that was 10.3. My fasting blood glucose had already halved to 9.4. So I'd already, within four days, halved the numbers. Uh, I then took the, I took the study with me proposed to the doctor that I was just going to reverse it through diet. He told me it was completely impossible. I told, I discovered it was actually quite possible to square, swear quite strongly at the general practitioner. <laughs> um, we had a fairly raging argument. I left a copy of the study on his desk and stormed out with his parting words being, you'll be back. Pretty much Arnie style. You'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> But I had a whole newfound confidence that this one woman was somehow going to save my life. Wow. So there you go. Wow. So, you know, that happened a few days in. Um, what happened over, you know, from there, uh, moving forward from those few days, um, how was your health impacted? How was your HbA1c impacted? Um now, what happened next? Well, funnily enough, the doctor himself was actually completely right. Six weeks later, I was indeed back again. But it was because I'd had another little accident. I, in, during my walking for one hour a day, three times a week, um, I'm not the world's um, what do you call? <laughs> most elegant of ladies, and I did manage to trip on the pavement. Um, and instead of just sinking gracefully to the ground, as, you know, proper ladies should, what I actually did was attempt to save myself by breaking into a run, which actually meant I then slammed faulted in, into the ground. Oh. And I managed to break my clavicle and dislocate my shoulder. Singularly, the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my entire life, including hitting myself in the face with a scaffold pole, which is the thing I'd done a few years before. So... As part of the process of being put back together by the A&E team this time, they discovered that my blood glucose was now four and a half. Wow. 
which was pretty normal because I got down to about that kind of level if I didn't eat for a while. So I wasn't surprised by this. But I also had ketones of three. And the doctor who, which again, wasn't a big surprise to me because I knew I was in ketosis because I now knew enough to sort of start measuring my ketones and that kind of thing. And I was, I mean, I was usually, whilst this was going on in the sort of one to one and a half range. I'd not really hit three before, but on the other hand, neither had I broken my, dislocated my shoulder before or then spent the last eight hours waiting to try and get it put back together again by two fairly burly um, guys working when it was three um and the doctor came in with a very you know of great consternation on his face and he said that you know i've got this four and a half mole and and three ketones and and he was really worried about me i replied by saying oh wonderful my diet's still working then despite all of this he responds by saying oh no 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 we've got a real problem here i'm going to put you on a drip i'm going to put you on a glucose drip Oh. You need to get rid of those ketones and you need to, you know, this is this, you know, you said you were diabetic and this is this is all, you know, this is all entirely concerning. So at that point, I'm now having yet another argument because they were insisting that this is what was going to happen. And I was saying, bugger off. So after 15 minutes of that, he kind of left with the um, on your own head, be it response. I think I, I swear that's actually probably why it took him another hour before somebody came and put my arms back, my arm back into its socket. Oh. Anyway, whilst I'm now waiting, a little nurse sidled up to me and said, "It was a quietly." You said you're reversing your type two diabetes, and it's just diet. And I said, "Yep, that's going swimmingly well." Because I was really quite confident. I don't know why actually. It didn't really make an awful lot of sense if the truth at all, but. So I said, yep, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. And she said, oh, the thing is, my, my dad's got type 2. I'm just wondering, you know, what, 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 what are you doing again? Anyway, the end result of that is that after they put my arm back and I could actually breathe enough to speak and gave a 15-minute impromptu lecture on the value of low-carb, high-protein diets and sat fat, sat fat teaching to an A&E team of five. Wow. My doctor, I then had to go back and visit and by this stage, of course, he's waiting for me to walk through the door in a state of collapse because this diet can't possibly work. They did my, he did my HbA1c at that stage, which was six weeks in. Um, by that stage, I'd got, got it down to 8% uh, or 64. All the blood markers were still going the right direction and the doctor's still shaking his head. Um, at six months, I was down to 5.5% HbA1c, which is 37 in American. And it's been about that ever since. Um, I've never taken any diabetes medications. Um, my HbA1c is entirely dependent on exactly how many carbs I eat. I can I can put the averages up a bit if I overeat lots of protein. So, for example, I don't know if I if I if I go for a, a day where I eat things like tuna and prawns, and it becomes a very low fat high protein you know tuna and prawns with salad day i know that i'm going to end up with slightly higher blood sugars across the piece i know that if i you know the more the protein beyond a certain level that will up it a bit but it's still going to stay under the 7.8 mole which is the kind of where everybody should be most of the time um if i eat a starch it'll just go through the roof 
you know, horrible. I can quite happily give myself a blood sugar reading of 20 by eating a tuna baguette sandwich or a baked potato really easily. (laughs) I don't do that anymore because it's silly. (laughs) So what foods, uh, I know you've referenced some of them, um, what foods make up uh, kind of some of the fundamental basics of of your diet these days? Um, well, I, th- I think it's it's fair to say that for me, and, and I suspect probably for quite a lot of other people, what what has happened over time is a gradual simplification of foods because. You know, in the start, what you're looking for is like, you know, what can I have that's a replacement for what would have been a carbohydrate? And so, so you're kind of trying to find, so, so, you know, I bought the almond flowers and the other things that were going to replace and allow me to make pizzas or whatever. Um, and then I discovered after a few months in, the, you know, in truth, not really that interested. It's actually much better. I, I think if, if it is not technically difficult, you don't have to be a cook. All you really need is a frying pan, a saucepan or maybe a, a, a slow cooker, some butter, and something that comes from land, sea, or air. So fish, chickens, birds, meat, lamb, goat, any of, anything that you actually like as meats or fishes. That plus some kind of above ground vegetable, I don't know, cauliflower, broccoli, leaves, any of those things, if you like them, and you don't actually have to get carried away with them, but you know, a bit of that for a bit of colour. I find that in my diet, nearly every day, there are things that are an absolute given. Nearly everything will have some onions in it and some mushrooms there will nearly always be a tomato appears on the agenda somewhere. <laughs> Everything will have some kind of cream sauce in some shape or form, maybe with butter, maybe with lemon juice, maybe with garlic, maybe with wine, maybe with herbs. It doesn't really matter which one of your spices, but somewhere or another, you know, you combine those things together, you pile it onto a piece of meat or fish that you have cooked yourself that you bought from the outer edges of a, of a supermarket often the very cheapest ones you can find you know i i am yeah you know, i'm fortunate that i'm not in need of saving money but i hate for example the idea of going into a supermarket and buying one of those jewels of meat that costs 32 pounds per 400 grams and it looks like it should be sat on a little throne <laughs> instead what i do is what's the stuff that's on sale yeah the ribs or the liver or the mince or the kidneys or, or, or all of those things and i just do the same kind of thing to all of them um and i if i've got a bone i boil it and i use the the, the stuff from, that came from the bone to flavor whatever i'm going to cook next i i think i mean as, as part of it i mean it's fairly true to say that nearly everything that i started off with has stayed pretty much as I first thought about it. Um, I, I do eat the odd fruit, but it will be raspberries and berries. You know, quite often it, it'll be stuff because I foraged it while I've been out on a walk or something. Um, I don't, I, I, I eat the odd apple for a bit of crunch, 
Um, bananas, definitely not. But then I didn't really like bananas in the first place. So it's, I can't really say it's down to my, my absolute dislike of them based on low carb. Um, so I think the, the, thing, the things that have progressed for me extra have been my view of fats. Um, I don't eat vegetable seed oils at all. Um, canolas and sunflowers, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, that was partly a result of actually thinking about the Chinese, funnily enough. Because, um, you know, you know, the Chinese and the Indians, they all eat a ton of rice and they don't get, get diabetes, apparently, until now. And you kind of think, okay, so what changed? And a couple of things changed. One is they eat it more often because they're not running out of food all the time. So they're not fasting much between meals. They're never getting their insulin back down again. Um, and two, they cook it in seed oils and they didn't used to. And it's an industrial waste product. It's not really a food. So I kind of, I, 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 that bit the dust fairly quickly. And then I thought about olive oil. And I have to admit, I'm not really a big fan of that either. I mean, I, I use it now and again, you know, as a flavoring on lettuce or whatever. But I read the, uh, I think, was it called? The Rose Corn Oil Trial, 1965. And it was quite funny, actually, because, you know, you've got three groups of people. And the first lot were eating what people used to eat in those days, uh, which included lots of, you know, animal fats. And the second lot were eating polyunsaturated fats. And the third lot were eating olive oils um and both the second and the third lot lasted far less long than the guys eating the sat fat and i'm thinking you know what i think i'm just going to stick with animal fats so i cook everything in i don't know beef fat or chicken schmaltz that's come off my own chickens or lard or butter or ghee duck fat goose fat but I don't bother with anything that if it's if it's slimy before it starts, it can stay in the bottle as far as I'm concerned. And I did discover I noticed actually uh, during lockdown, funnily enough, that yeah, there were a whole bunch of things in my cupboard that had been those things that one was going to transition with that had gradually just got it's too old to even think about now. You know, so the, the I don't know, I've got carbohydrate replacement wraps for carbohydrates for tortillas or whatever it's like oh what now two years old i've never opened it i never i'm gonna do and if i really want to wrap something i shall just get myself a nice bird of lettuce <laughs> yeah and it works perfectly well you know and i think right. that yeah so it's, it's it's a bit weird um so so you know 10 10 foods and i'm pretty much there really um but the thing is it all tastes fantastic yeah yeah, it does not sound like a, a depriving diet at all. It sounds like a very rich, fulfilling diet. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, it, it's funny because, I mean, I've had, I don't know, I've had three-course meal dinner parties where there hasn't been a carb in sight and not one of the people around the table is a low-carber. And I've noticed. They don't know. You know, I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not actually jump out and hit you that there isn't a potato in there. You know, it's just find real food that you like. Um, and you don't need, and I think the other thing, the other thing I, that I have, a, I, I'm big on is that such a lot of being diabetic is, is a sense of somebody trying to tell you off. It's like, you're obese, it's your problem, 
you're a, not a worthwhile human being in some shape or form and somebody will tell you and give you a set of instructions that are all really quite negative. And I think, you know what? Actually, the reason for that is if you can blame the individual, it couldn't possibly be the fault of the food supply or the government or the processed food industry. So everybody that goes down that route is really just trying to move the blame away from the food supply, which is rubbish, to the individual. And that's just not fair on the individuals. You know, it's perfectly possible to have a really fun, healthy, happy life without worrying about any of these things if you just go and learn how to do some really simple cooking of really cheap foods from the outer corners of the supermarket. And that's the message we should be sending to people. I, I love that message. And um, I, I think it's so powerful. Yeah, I agree that um, so much of this problem comes from the food supply. You mentioned vegetable oils earlier, those polyunsaturated fats and how they're an industrial waste product. That's now, you know, now it's scattered throughout the food supply. As you mentioned, uh, the Chinese cooking with, um, with those seed oils. Uh, that's how, you know, any restaurant you go to pretty much in most of the world now, they're using these seed oils. They're cheaper, but they are not fit for human consumption. And, um, you know, in my opinion, I think the research would bear that out. And uh, so, yeah, it, it does point to larger um, problems with the food supply. There's a reason why diseases like type 2 diabetes and many, many other diseases are um, are skyrocketing, why the rates are skyrocketing now. And it's not because humans just suddenly got lazier. You know, it, it's... Uh, oh, it's ridiculous. It's, it's a ridiculous concept. But one of the things, and it did make me laugh because, I mean, you asked, you know, how, how has life changed? And, you know, what's gone away? Well, I mean, to be honest, all of those things that I had before have gone away. I, I'm left with a, a sort of a, a, a searing sense of, of disappointment that if I'd known when I was 15 that I couldn't eat carbohydrates, my life would probably have been very different. Whether or not it would have been a worse one, I don't know, but it would certainly be different. Um, about two, about, I think about 18 months into this journey, um, one of the things I did, which, which made me laugh, is, is I've got a 24-year-old nephew. We get on really well. We decided, in a somewhat bizarre plan, that we were going to go on a three-week backpacking trip to Japan. And I wouldn't mind, but it's six foot four. I mean, I'm only five foot five. So, so every one of his steps, I kind of had to skip. And we're going around Japan together. We traveled the whole of Japan and we went, you know, we do things like, you know, you get to a, a temple and there's a little set of steps on the ne- next to the temple and it's got 20 steps. And in my old guys, 20 steps, temple, huh, let me out of here. Now, Oh, it's 20 steps. I can do that. So get to the top of the 20 steps to discover there are 200 more behind it. And I can do those as well. And I get to the top and I realize that I am better able to do that today, age 60, than when I was 17 trying to go up a bunch of hills with my mates at school. What's the difference? The difference is today I eat meat and eggs. And then 
I tried very hard to be like everybody else. I had absolute food insecurities about eating low fat, low everything, feeling guilty every damn day. And that just is kind of so sad. And anything. Yeah. And then, you know, and I look back on all these other incidents. I look back on, you know, my, my infertility problems. I look back on, you know, when my eye blew up, I look back on the sepsis when I nearly lost my leg twice. I look at the amputations that people are having right, left and center. I know I've actually done the same damage to my foot because I seem to do it quite frequently um, since than I did in both occasions when I got sepsis and nothing happens. Nothing happens because I no longer suffer from having all the sugars all over my body. And what yes, about the, the tingling? Um, tingling completely gone. Carbol tunnels completely gone. Cough completely disappeared. I no longer sweat when I go outside. I can take the sun without worrying about it. I mean, one of, one of the anecdotal things which we all know, but which, of course, the, the, the scientific world thinks is a complete codwallop, is this issue about if you don't eat something, and which I'm assuming might be the vegetable oils, then you don't sunburn. Um, now, I actually, I mean, I'm fortunate that, that I spend a lot of my life um, in places very sunny. Um, and now that's an absolute pleasure. I don't really care if it's 35 degrees centigrade because I can lie out in that and I don't even need to put suntan lotion on. I am a British blonde who has spent 40 years avoiding the sun at all possible times because she will burn. And last summer, for the very first time, I went a rich brown colour. Wow. And you're like, how? I mean, I'm not saying I did it stupidly. I didn't just go and lie out in the sun for three hours from nowhere. I tested it. I added 20 minutes, you know, every other day or whatever. But by the end of that, in the height of the Mediterranean sun in August, I was out two hours, no sun cream, no burning, just browner. And all around me were a bunch of swarthy Mediterranean types slapping sun cream on right, left and center whilst eating a burger. And I know, you know, how, how, how can we as a society have got this so wrong? It, it, it's mind blowing. You know, we fear the sun. We fear uh, foods that have been very healing in your case. And in many, many, many people's cases, I think it, goes to show these foods are likely to be very natural and healthy foods for us, but we're taught to avoid them. We're taught to avoid the sun. We're taught to, you know, protect ourselves from the sun that's always been there by slathering um, chemical-laden sunscreens on ourselves instead. And, you know, your experience, and as you kind of referenced earlier, the experience of a great deal of people who discuss this online is, you know, they have much greater sun tolerance and uh, much greater ability to withstand sun exposure once they eat a diet that uh, better suits them. Um, and in a lot of those cases, it's, yeah, it's cutting out those vegetable oils. It might be cutting out carbohydrates in a lot of those cases, upping the, um, the animal proteins, animal fats. It's, um, yeah. 
Well, I know, I mean, you asked, I think, at some point, about, you know, did, did you, you know, do you have um, blood results or whatever for what you do? And I, I mean, I get a, a comprehensive set of those things done every, every six months. And one of the things that makes me laugh is that, that I got to handle like 51 different markers. And, and of these 51, what you actually see is a gradual move of all of them to wherever the optimal place would be for them. So if, if, if something's supposed to go down and be at the low end of the range or something, that's where it goes, et cetera, et cetera. There's only one that I've really got no idea which way it's going to go in any particular blood test, and that's the LDL one. And I kind of look at it and I think, you know what? In practice, if 51 markers, if 50 of them are all going in one direction and one of them happens to go in the other and somehow or other that one is supposed to be a bad one, then my guess would be we just got it the wrong way around. Because the human body is not stupid. You know, right. It is not going to have 50 going in one direction and one that will kill you. Yeah. Because that would just be daft. You know, and so, so again... And one of the things, because, you know, you, online you hear stuff about, you know, well, you know, well, the Verta, but, yeah, the Verta was it's self-selected and now it's in their interest, blah, blah, blah. Actually, me and hundreds of other people that have done it knew exactly what results were going to come out from Verta. They know exactly which way all of these markers are going to go because we've already done it. We've seen it. It's not rocket science. It will just happen because humans are all pretty much like each other. And sure... You know, it may be that I am more intolerant to starch and somebody else might be more intolerant to sugar. And it may be that some people can't eat this fish or that nut or that whatever. But fundamentally, we're all pretty damn similar. And we spend far too much time trying to monetize what is a normal, natural human process in ways that are absolutely barking mad, in my opinion. So. I I agree with you completely. It's uh, yeah, it, it's hard to see it. I think a lot of times when we talk about it, it's gonna you can't unsee it once you've seen it. No, you can't. And 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 I, I mean, I know from a personal perspective, and I say, I mean, I'm kind of fortunate that I'm retired, and once I got the bit between my teeth, I kind of quite quite interested in seeing what on earth's going on with something. So so having read this one paper. I've kind of moved on now, and I've read dozens of them. I've read the abstracts, I've read the real papers, I've read the books, I've read the vegan books, I've read the low-carb books, I've read every book I can think of. I've listened to tubes and podcasts and God knows what. Um, most of them fundamentally boil down to exactly the same things as that very first study did. I mean, they really don't come back and tell me something I didn't already have an inkling of based on that. Um, what they do do, though... I, I, I think it, it makes it more and more easy to start to see some of the ways that we mislead everybody and just how easy it is to mislead everybody. So, for example, you know, if, I, if I'm going to read one of these studies, I'm an accountant. I'm not a scientist. No, I don't necessarily understand all the things they're saying. And I absolutely admire the people who are the lay people who've put their effort into getting to understand that. I think that's completely brilliant. But even though I can't understand those things, I can apply some common sense. Um, you know, so, for example, if I'm going to read a study, is it epidemiology? Well, actually, no. Epidemiology, I've renamed schlepidemiology. 
<laughs> I've actually be, appeared in the British Medical Journal and uh, writing a letter published on that very subject. <laughs> not because I think they're necessarily trying to be difficult. It's just like, it's clearly nonsense. Yeah. It's too much stuff that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so, you know, gar- yeah. garbage in, garbage out for, for the data. It has to be. Then, then you come to who funded it. Yep. Yeah, everything has to be funded. And no doubt some of them, they're funded it with the best of intentions. But you should know. What do the researchers themselves eat? And again, everybody thinks their own diet is the best one, including me. Completely get that. But it's important that you actually know what it is. The other one I find absolutely fascinating, does it actually disclose any actual facts? So, for example, you see the word fat used dozens of times. What they really mean is some kind of vegetable oil. Right. They use, they talk about the study diet. Do they actually tell you what it was? No. Even if you get so far enough just to find what was the number of the rat chow, you then have to spend hours going down into some kind of tunnel to finally come up with, well, yes, this, this thing that started off at the front was, you know, fat is bad for you, has actually become sort of some emulsion of soya bean oil, which is, oh, yeah, I agree with that. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with my diet. Right. A number of times it's meat or saturated fat as if it's the same thing. Or they mean a burger, chips and a bun when they call it red meat. Yep. Or they say, this is better than this. And this one's an absolute classic because everywhere you look, you see the it's the, it's the tobacco industry play. It's the filtered cigarettes are better than unfiltered cigarettes. Therefore, filtered cigarettes are good. No. (laughs) Therefore, we should be comparing them with something without cigarettes. So, you know, time and again, you see that. You see this, you know, whole grains are better than refined grains. Well, sure they are, but neither of them are very good. Whatever. I'm not really... That is just... it's It's such a play that enables people to get away with bad science. And I just find, I just get so irritated by that. Um, and, and the other thing is, that of course, you know, if the science is saying something which reflects my own blood results, I'm inclined to pay more attention. Right. If it's going to tell me that it'll do something that it clearly didn't, then funnily enough, I'm really not that fussed about the science at all. So. Right. Yeah, you, you've got a results focus and, you know, you're able to look at what's kind of empirical if you test one thing, you know, if you do this, what happens as opposed to um, a lot of the science that's out there, especially the epidemiology, it's not necessarily going to tell you anything. And it's trying to do associational things based on really bad data. And as you said, even if you get into some of the specific studies, it's so hard to distinguish what's what the causative factors are and you know yeah if they say fat is bad and they're referencing a diet high in soybean oil that's a lot different well, than you know a, a diet high in fat that's eating high you know animal fats um, yeah, well, i think that's true and I, th- I think as well i mean when you go through all those studies i mean one of the things that that, that always sort of amuses me but frustrates me is that the more you look into it and the more you look into the history, there's actually nothing new about the low-carb space. No. Not a bit's new. In 1797, 
a doctor reverse diabetes with an all meat diet. And since then, there's been a constant, there's a chap called Rollo. Since then, there's been a constant stream of doctors trying to get the message out. Constant. Every year, every century, there'll be another one, you know, write another book. And in fact, the one that actually made me giggle most, um, I don't know if you've come across it, there's a book called The Drinking Man's Diet, published in 1964. It was actually one of the most popular diets of the time. And basically, it was a low-carb diet plus wine and whiskey. Which in the context of my, um, you know, my reading of that very first study has always made me laugh. Yeah. The point is, you know, this guy lived to a ripe old age, 97, and he had a hell of a time doing it. You know, he had a <laughs> And I think, you know, that's one of the things we shouldn't forget. You know, life, life is supposed to be fun. And if yeah. you're currently a T2 diabetic sat out there feeling depressed with your life, feeling as if you can't do anything about it, listening to your doctor telling you, you know, basically what a waste of space you are because you're too fat and you've got this and you've got that and you've got this set of drugs. Just understand, actually, it doesn't have to be that way. Come and join those of us that have had a go. We all know how hard it can be. Some of us have got a problem with too much starch. Some of them have got a problem with, you know, we love sugar. Some of us can't get rid of, you know, our addiction to something or other. But there is a whole universe out there of people who are dying to help you well actually living to help you rather than <laughs> and that's you know you you if, if you have any of those problems join i don't know join the diabetes.co.uk that's the, the 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 outfit that's not the official one uh forum where there's hundreds of people doing it and if you have a problem they'll tell you and they'll help you and they'll show you some recipes and they'll show you what sort of things you could do to try and help your diet Join dietdoctor.com. It's got thousands of people. I think it's got 80,000 paying customers at the moment. Those people pay because it's worth it. And then the food's great and the advice is great and the people that are on there that are people you can refer to and go and find out more about, all of them absolutely open with their time, with their efforts. You know, you won't see any community where the doctors and the scientists and the N equals ones and the anecdotes communicate more with each other and try and help each other more than in this community. It's, it's across the board and it's marvelous. See, it's just superb. And, you know, everybody should just give that a go, you know, and I'm not saying in all of this that, you know, you really need to drink whiskey. Of course you don't. I'm not saying, you know, become an alcoholic. I'm saying life should be fun. Yeah. And it can be fun for you too. You don't need to, to, to sort of go into the dark night in a depressive fog because there will be people who will help you. Um, and that's, you know, that's why, I mean, you said up front that, you know, I'd, I'd done some stuff in the local community and you know, in, in my actual job, if you like, I mean, I'm an accountant by profession. I'm working in the reinsurance industry, funnily enough, for years. And then I got the movie bug um, to a, f- a few years ago. And, uh, and if you'll allow me to, I'll make one quick plug. If anybody, oh, who, actually, <laughs> if anybody who actually lives in the UK, um, I, I, I have a film out at the moment called Provenance, starring Charlotte Vega, who's a brilliant actress. It's, uh, it came out on Curzon Home Cinema and Amazon Prime. And if you're in the UK, please give it a go. It's, it's nothing whatsoever to do with uh, nutrition, but it is a good film, um, especially if you like indie drama with a European flavour. If horror 
is your thing. Then I've got another one coming out soon called The Creeping. And that's uh, starring Ryan Steele. If you're an American, I don't know. I don't know enough about this yet, but there's a new new series coming out called Debris, which is a TV series. Uh, some so it's kind of like a seems to be a follow on from um, the X Files type of thing. Anyway, Ryan Steele is going to be she she's the lead in that. So quite pleased that she's in my film. That should be coming out soon. If we go into nutrition. Um, I did spend quite a long time thinking, well, you know, I'm into movies. I've got movie friends. Maybe I should make a movie. Um, and then I looked at what people were doing. Um, Vinnie Tortorich with his fat documentary. Jennifer Eisenhart with fat fiction. And you've got Food Lies, The Madness of Carbs, Sacred Cow, um, The Biggest Little Farm. All of those I have helped get off the ground in some shape or form but it's not you know it's significant enough for it to make a hole in what i own um i'm not for a second taking away the value of all the work that all the people have done to actually make those things happen but i kind of decided it made more sense for me to try and help other people do it bearing in mind they knew more about the science that went with it than it ever would for me because i didn't um and because i'm i'm really much more of a kind of drama drama queen really in all respects so so i thought I'd, I'd, i thought i'd stick to the drama i do actually have a drama plan underway um which will be in the low carb space but i'm currently waiting for the new normal for the film industry after covid given that everybody's lost the plot um i have got another initiative underway which i'd like to come back and talk about some other time if 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 i can joe which is which is basically due to this issue about n equals ones yeah, um yeah. I think bearing in mind what's happened to me, I'm, I've become a pretty profound believer in the, concept, in, in the concept that our nutrition evidence pyramid is the wrong way up. Yeah. I think what sits at the top is the anecdote. Yeah. It's the individual who's done something, who knows why, who actually has the evidence in their own head of the specific actions they took that made a difference. The second level is the doctor. He's the guy who understood that. And having understood, you know, somebody like um, David Unwin, is just a, just a remarkable individual, somebody with enough open-mindedness to listen and use it for other people. Um, and there are, there's a whole cohort of, of low-carb doctors out there, some of whom got there without the anecdotes, some of them created the anecdotes, some of them are helping the anecdotes, but between them, those are real lived experiences, and that's what counts. Absolutely. I think the science isn't there to discover something brand new. What is there is to tell us why. Yes. You know, if a thousand people can do something with X, and it doesn't really matter what X is, you yep. scientists, you Mr. Scientist, you go and tell me what is it. What's the thing creating that? Don't come back and tell me I should eat healthy whole grains. Because I know I shouldn't. Right, right. Does that make sense? That does. And and clearly, you know, if you have something, we are putting so much money into so many wrong things. You know, as, as, as governments, we should be relying on asking our people, what is it that you've done? Let's find out why, let's find out how, and let's harness those people to help everybody else. 
and we don't do it. I mean, in fact, even I mean, in the last couple of weeks, you know, you've seen this fuss about Dr. Unwin's sugar teaspoons, um, and there's a petition out at the moment. And actually, if I can make a play for, can we please all sign that petition? You know, what David Unwin did was, you know, he said, okay, I've understood what you N equal one people are doing. I've understood how much that could reverse diabetes. And I found a really simple way to help your average person understand. And I'll use teaspoons. I'm sure it's not scientifically absolute because it's glucose not and, not, and sugars, glucose and fructose. But so what? 99% of individuals will understand that. Yeah, they don't have to have read the study. It's an effective way to get the message across. His, his infographics showing um, in different foods um, how many carbohydrates are in that food. He represents that with spoon, spoonfuls full of uh, sugar in just a little in a diagram. And uh, yeah, that, that's what's being referenced here. And it, it's a very, it's a powerful visual and it's Absolutely. very educational. And the really stupid thing about it is everybody in the world likes these things. It's being translated into different languages. Every doctor that's seen it, that's understood it, has thought powerful. Now, doctors have got 10 minutes to get the message across in most places. And you can do it with those. And what did the UK government do? They allowed themselves to be bullied by a Daily magazine, daily newspaper, God knows where they got the particular idea from, I can make a guess, but in order to make a specific point about, but yes, it's not the same result. You know, the, the, the actual paper that came out um, in the press was like, it's such awful misrepresentation, even of the facts. I mean, I, I don't know if you read the article, but what they did, Joe, was... They used two people only, and they showed that they had a slightly different response to bananas and sugar. Therefore, representing bananas as teaspoons of sugar is not meaningful. <laughs> what they actually did was set the base at zero. So what they said was it changes by two or four from this zero number. They didn't actually show that this was a real blood sugar number of 14 to 16, or something like that. Because, yes, it's true that it's slightly different, but we have absolutely no idea how bad it really was for the individuals. And they didn't apply it to anybody who's got diabetes. But the thing that I find, that the thing that is just awful, nice, announced, and they've actually put this in writing, that the reason that they have decided to remove the endorsement is not that they disagree with the science, it's that they have decided that it is inadvertently causing them to endorse a low-carbohydrate diet, which is not their preferred diet for people with T2 diabetes because dietitians tell them that you should eat whole grains. And I am like, uh, what level of madness is this? It truly, yeah, it, it, I, I can't really fathom uh, just how insane it is. It, it, it's, it's changed the way I look at the entire world, seeing the way this little, you know, little area, nutrition operates. And 
you know, we see similar patterns that play out all over the world in uh, nutrition. And just to see how things so profoundly wrong and um, how off things can be, it, it's been truly shocking to me these past few years as I've dug into it. And it, it's what's, you know, it's what motivates um, people like us to try and get this message out there, I think, because there's so much misinformation that we just want to get get these good, positive, real stories out there. Let people know, hey, there is hope. Not even if, even if you're hearing from your official sources um, that maybe there's not there's nothing you can do. Like, oh, you're you're stuck with this condition. You're stuck with whatever it is. Um, there is hope, and absolutely. Yeah. Well, I tell you, Joe. One of the things I did do in in my um, reading of these hundreds of studies. One of the things I did was I decided I would spend, and it probably took me it took me about a month, I think, actually, uh, to, I basically sat down with a kind of a medical textbook, chronic conditions, and Google. And I've ended up with a list of more than 100 conditions where if you look at that condition and Google either the words insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, you will come up with a connection because those people will have got one or other of those things more than somebody else. And how do you lower those? You change your diet back to real food. Might not actually cure your condition, but it can't hurt. And it's only food. Right. It- you know, it's not like you're being told to eat some terrible chemical that somebody's just manufactured. It's just food. Just food. Carolina Cartier, a previous podcast guest, uh, she reversed her infertility um, using a carbohydrate-controlled diet. You know, she had the exact same idea. I, it, it's it's baffling to me that it's not common knowledge that insulin resistance and/or hyperinsulinemia are tied to all of these conditions. And you know, it it's it's so logical. And so straightforward in many ways that, you know, lower the carbohydrates, lower the insulin, lower your disease risk, that it's so straightforward that people almost overcomplicate it and they think, well, it couldn't possibly be that simple, that straightforward. You know, I mean, even just some basic things, you know, acne. Yeah. Um, Celiac disease, fair enough. Chlamydia. Crohn's disease, eczema, endometriosis, fibromyalgia, fibrosis, gum diseases, hearing loss, tintinitis, leukemia, liver conditions, macular degeneration. It doesn't matter. You name it. If you've got any of them, nobody is saying it will necessarily cure you. Right. Nobody's saying don't go to a doctor. Right. Uh, just think about okay, I could just try and go for real food. Yeah. Get rid of the stuff in the packets and get rid of the stuff in the vegetable oils and you never know, it might help. It might. Well, I'm curious in your case, do you consider yourself, you know, you you were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, you had um, hypertension, you were having lots of other symptoms, um, everything from brain fog to, uh, you know, concerns about early uh, dementia and uh, tingling in your 
um, and your hands and feet. Um, you know, so I'm curious, do you consider yourself cured of your conditions? I mean, cure, cure is an interesting word. I mean, I, I think what I have has gone away in most instances. I still suffer a little bit from um, high blood pressure now and again, um, a lot less than before and um, with a lot less medications, but I keep an eye on it. The type 2 diabetes, uh, I mean, I suspect cure probably would also involve also having to get rid of some of the excess weight as well, and I'm not quite there yet. But I am pretty confident from what I've seen over the three years. And bear in mind, I wear a CGM, so I've got a Libra face style, so I know exactly what happens every time I eat or don't eat, uh, and then with every type of food. And I now know absolutely unequivocally that the level of my HbA1c is going to completely reflect the things I chose to eat. Um, and I can put it up or I can put it down at will. I probably can't get it down below a certain level until I also manage to get rid of all of my excess weight. And maybe one day I'll do that as well if I can stop partying now and again. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a kind of question of where, which one do you put in the the higher level? I, you know, I don't do stupid things anymore, but I do have a lot of fun. So that's fair enough. <laughs> um, I don't have tingling anymore. Um, my ankles aren't swollen anymore. I think my brain's about as sharp as it's ever been, um, which you know may or may not be good depending on where you look at me from. <laughs> the uh, yeah, no, I I, I think I, I think what's fundamentally changed for me now is that people talk about you know whether or not this diet is sustainable or not. Um, I don't really see diet as being a relevant term anymore i think what i would say is i've i've determined that human beings should eat these types of foods these types of foods are meats and proteins and vegetables and animal fats and, and vegetables to for taste they are not the stuff that is for sale in all of the inner aisles of the supermarkets and as such it's not a hardship not to go in them. I don't have to persuade myself not to buy a box of cereals or a box of biscuits anymore because it's not food. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things, one of the other projects that I've, I've got underway, which is, you know, at some point we, we can, we can hopefully address is this idea of, of let's connect N equals ones and their actual diets, their actual blood results, their actual, you know, who, who cured what, and let's give them a, a mechanism to do that. And I've been working on that with some of the, some of the leaders in, in the industry. The problem I had was when we got to sort of February and the first news started to come out about COVID, I could feel myself thinking, you know what? What's going to happen here is we're going to end up with metabolic problems right, left and centre. Because the very, fir- it's funny, the very first couple of pictures that came out of China and you're like looking at it and thinking, those people have all got metabolic syndrome. Right. And so I, I kind of delayed it on the grounds that what I'd like to do is just see how that science was going to pan out. And at the same time, it's not appropriate to suddenly start sending out messages to everybody during the middle of a pandemic. So I thought, you know, better, better, probably better bet, sit back on it, wait and see what comes out, wait and see what's happening in terms of what the evidence tells us about the science 
you know, there's no point. Everybody's under enough stress as it is at the moment. And actually, if anything, what, what this period will do is kind of help a lot of people who are, if you like, low-carb aficionados understand how hard it is to keep up with it in a stressful period. You know, yeah. did we all suddenly go off and buy biscuits? How right. many of us put on God knows how much weight because we just gave up? And decided, oh, there'll be quite a few people that are in the situation because it's been a hugely stressful period. And it's not so much time to get less stressful at the moment. But, but I do think, you know, given time, we'll all be, okay, now we can tackle where we're going. And I think if nothing else, the level of understanding that you need to think about food has gone up recently. So hopefully that, that will make a difference. And when I'm ready to go live with that, I'd like to come back and we can see if we can kickstart the whole lot. I, I love that. And I, I've got uh, one more question that we ask this question to uh, every guest on the show here. Um, now that you've improved your health, what's one thing you enjoy doing that you couldn't do before? You know, that is a really difficult one because as I said before, it was not like I couldn't do stuff beforehand. I just used to do it with only one hand tied behind my back. Um, I think I think what's changed for me is a fundamental kind of joy in life that I now know how I think I'm going to spend my retirement years in a healthy fashion. I'm no longer sitting here waiting for the Alzheimer's to hit. You know, of course, something can go wrong. But it's kind of like, do I think I am as susceptible to any of what may come next than I was 10 years ago? Absolutely not. Am I more likely to spend a healthy retirement from 62 to 80 than I would ever have dreamed possible? Yes. That's what changing the food gave me. And it's just miraculous. That is, that is miraculous. The peace of mind that brings is terrific. Um, thank you so much for sharing this. And, you know, if, if there's anyone listening who wants to learn more from you, um, is there any way people can reach out to you? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the best way is via Twitter. I'm AmandaZZ100 on Twitter. Um, I'm quite noisy, um, <laughs> so you can usually find me there. Um, I have got a, you know, I follow quite a lot of the leaders as well. And what I think I haven't done actually is just give a quick shout out to you know some of my my biggest heroes. There are dozens I could mention, but you know, if you if you're interested in this field, Nina Teakholz, Gary Taubes, Gary Fetka, Ben Bigman, David and Jen Unwin, Dominic D'Agostino. Brian Sanders, Dr. Tro, Brian Lynxes. Yeah, you could go on and on, but you can find all those people easily at diadoctor.com. And, and don't forget that, you know, there's just hundreds of people with smaller businesses, smaller footprints, all making a difference. And, you know, they might have got 500 followers. They might have got 5,000. They care just as much as I do. And, yeah, you, Joe, I mean, Joe, you're in the same boat. I mean, I can remember our first discussions. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell do I do? Yep. How can I personally 
try and get this message to everybody. And that's what we all need to do because this is going to be a ground up solution. Yep. Something that will go on and it's a fight that's going to go on for a long time. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, if anybody ever wants to talk to me, I'm always happy to. And I say Amanda ZZ 100. Amanda ZZ 100 on Twitter. I can vouch for, yeah. Uh, for that, that you're open to talking to anyone. And uh, Amanda, I'm glad to be uh, in this fight with you, alongside you. Um, yeah, and, and everybody else who's going to appear. I mean, there right. are a couple of people I can re- I can recommend to, to come join in. I'd, I'd love that. I'd love that. Well, yeah. thank you so much for uh, your time, Amanda. And um, yeah, we'll talk yeah. again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, thanks, Joe. Bye. Thank you for listening to You Cured What? Join us again soon for another story of healing.